there's this movie subcategory that has kind of risen to the surface in the last 20 years or so, and it all started with the movie Groundhog Day. Movie surface, movies surfacing around the idea of someone doing the same thing over and over and over again. And one of my favorite movies in this new category, and you can totally roast me for this, is the movie Fifty First Dates. <laughs> I, I, I love rom-coms. I, I don't know why. I just, at some point when I was like 18 or 19, when everyone else was watching like Transformers, rom-coms just, there's a soft spot for there for me. I was gonna say this movie is underrated. It's really not. It's very <laughs> pixelated, but there it is. But the pre premise of the movie is quite simple. Uh, this bachelor on holidays falls in love with this girl after one day, only to awaken the next day and find out that she has amnesia and she has forgotten everything that has happened the, the past day. So he takes it upon himself to win her back day after day. I won't spoil it, but you can imagine where it ends up. Uh, but it's this cyclical movie where after all the toil of the day, everything that he's worked towards after the day, uh, nothing seems to really change. Nothing new. It's a ridiculous movie, ridiculous premise, but obviously there, there's something there. There's some repetition to, to life. And as I was preparing for this, I was telling Katie one day after dinner about like, what I was talking about. And I, that day I had made dinner for us, and don't look at me as like some saintly husband who's like, it's just a normal thing. I am not good at cooking. I, I'm, a I'm quite a bad cook, actually. I'm really good at helping and like, cutting vegetables and washing dishes and making pancakes and barbecuing. I'm like a dad already. Like, that's, like, that's, my, that's, my, that's my ceiling. Um, and so on this particular day, Katie in the morning had prepared... I was cooking. I was cooking. But Katie in the morning cut up all the vegetables. She mixed all of the seasonings that were going to go on the vegetables. The meat that I was supposed to barbecue was already tucked away, and it was like I was supposed to barbecue it. The pan was already laid out with the parchment paper. All I had to do was go home, turn it to 400, put all the vegetables on the tray, put it in the oven, start the barbecue. It's like, it's like foolproof. I did not do that. I managed to mess it all up. I managed to put like a third of the vegetables. I only found a third of the vegetables in the fridge. Apparently, they were right next to the others. I added all of the seasoning to this small portion of vegetables. And instead of barbecuing the meat, I cut it up and I put it on the tray. And I pull this out after 30 minutes and Katie's like, where are the other vegetables? Where, where did they go? All that to say, there's a cycle there. This happens. This isn't just like, oh, a one-off. Like, no worries, Nate, you got this next time. It's like every time. On top of that, Katie, like, texts me this long thing, like, Nate, you got this. You're going to do so well. I did not do well. I didn't do well. I, I kind of messed up. I try and I try, and still somehow I managed to, to just miss the instructions. Nothing new with me. And while those are funny, ridiculous stories, there's something to the cycle of what happens in life. Maybe on a deeper level, there's a sin, a sin pattern that just keeps happening over and over, and you just can't seem to, to bump it. You keep falling into this pitfall, and you're not sure when this cycle is going to end. Nothing new. So what gives? Are we all just doomed to the cycle of life going on and on forever? According to the author of Ecclesiastes, maybe. How is that for a midsummer encouragement? All of you who are here on the August long weekend who are like, should I go to the lake or should I go to church? Are like, wow, this is going to be an encouraging one this, this morning. 
But I really believe there are some hints in this morning's text and in the large scope of Scripture that point to to hope, that point to faith. And so as you're listening this morning, and we might hit like the 15, 20-minute mark, and you're like, this is getting more depressing. At the end, it's going to get good. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for, for this morning, for this time of worship, for this time to be together, to, to see people we haven't seen uh, maybe in a week or in a while at church, and just to, to be in fellowship together and to open your word, to sing you songs, to, to pray together. And so I pray this morning as we open your word and we, we study it, we look at it, God, that you would be speaking to us, that you would be uh, softening our hearts, that you would teach us what you want to teach us this morning um, by your word. So we pray these things uh, in your son's name. Amen. And so this morning we're going to be, we've been in this series in, the Ecclesi- in Ecclesiastes, uh, or at least our staff have been, and just kind of going through, not at random, but like different passages. And so this morning it's Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. And before I read it, I just, there was a moment this week where I was like studying this, and when you're sitting in the same text all week over and over again, it kind of almost loses its, not that it loses its shine, but you begin to just study it as if it's something that you need to, to study. And it hit me this week on how incredible the Word of God actually is, of how this, this thing that was written 3,000 years ago, or this, at least this passage today, still speaks so clearly to what is going on in our modern world today. And so it just hit me and struck me, and so I pray this morning as we even just read it right now that that same, that same moment would, would pass over you as well. So Ecclesiastes chapter 1, with the heading, Everything is Meaningless. The words of the teacher a son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun." Is there anything of which one can say, look, there's something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Encouraging stuff. How is that for, uh, not something that you're going to necessarily always dwell in if you're looking for encouragement, but this is this is God's word, and it's in there, and it's not something just to be glossed over. And there's this beautiful lesson to be learned um, from the author of Ecclesiastes, from this book. I think this book is really important for us. Life, and especially our faith journey, is not always up and to the right, where everything is this utopian experience, and we never experience hiccups or slip-ups or challenges that come, come up. 
Additionally, the book of Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. It's the sort of book that is concerned about the order of one's life. And a wise response to reading it is to integrate it into our life. If God has created an order of how things are to be for us to flourish, to be his image bearers, the wise response in wisdom literature and in scripture is to try and figure out how does this fit into my world? How does this fit into following Jesus day to day? On top of that, it's a very, it's a rugged book full of truth. One scholar answers the question of why it is important. And he says this, faith is not always a militant, happy, go, yuppie experience. In Ecclesiastes, we get faith verging on depression, on sadness. Sometimes faith is hard, and this book points to that. I like that. Sometimes faith is hard. And this book really, I think, points to that reality where oftentimes we celebrate the up and the, and the, and the victories. And we should. We definitely should. But I'm glad and I'm grateful that our Bible also has passages like this where I think we can all agree that there are moments in our life where things aren't always looking up. Because the writer of Ecclesiastes, his audience, the writer is, is writing to a world where the pursuit of, of riches was kind of the name of the game. Imagine the reader of this book sitting at a crossroad. To the left was the Israelite experience up to that point. A quiet agricultural existence, kind of quiet, kind of not necessarily minding their own business, but a quiet agricultural existence. And on the other side, the Israelite would have seen the newness of Egypt, of Asia, of Europe, and seen the potential there. See that fortunes were to be made and riches were to be had over there. Put a stamp on your life and make something new of yourself. And so the reader of this book is hearing this and trying to figure out, okay, what does life look like under the sun, and how does God fit into this? And what happens when God is at the center of that? And so the message this morning is pointed that there's nothing truly new. You can pursue, but your pursuits are going to be fleeting. You can pursue and pursue, but nothing will really change. But the key to this text is that the writer is speaking on this side of heaven. Whenever we see the phrase, under the sun, we have to think about it from an earthly perspective. The perspective of, of, of the writer not fully aware of, of Jesus coming as Savior, as what would life look like without God. Jesus coming in the flesh as the one who has come, who is new and is making all things new. And so we have that hope at the end of this, while also this being written with the perspective of things being under the sun, not being as cheery as you think. And so this morning, we're going to look at this passage through that lens of what it means for, some, for nothing to be new under the sun and how we can take that and run with it and, and find peace and hope in Jesus. And so we'll start with verses 1 to 4. And what is to be gained from all of this work, from all of this hustle? Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations, generations go, but the earth remains forever. And so the author begins with a quick tirade to set the tone for the rest of the book. Meaningless or vanity. Because in the very next line, the author reveals the question that's pressing on his heart as he writes this, this, these words. What does man gain by all the toil that he toils under the sun. What's the point of all of this? 
And when we hear the phrase meaningless, we can often hear almost the nihilistic chance of this postmodern world we're living in, that everything is meaningless. You do you because nothing at all really matters. It's kind of a, a dreary outlook on life, and it's one that is often adopted by our world. But I don't think we should, well, I know for sure, we shouldn't download our idea of what meaningless looks like onto this text, because I think the author had something else he was trying to say here. One scholar puts it like this. It is not that life is meaningless. That is not what vanity or meaningless points to in this book. The message is that there are no fail-safe rules or formulas that will guarantee success. Nothing that one can apprehend securely. Justice may not be found where one might expect. People may not get what they deserve. There is no telling who will have a good life and who will not. And even if one has a good life one moment, it may be gone the next. It is an arbitrary world in which human beings live, one that is full of risks and devoid of guarantees. Some amount of wisdom may help reduce the risks, but accidents happen nonetheless. Everything seems to be in the power of the transcendent deity who alone determines all that happens. That is what it is like under the sun. I would almost say a definition like that almost is more haunting than the nihilistic one. The image I get is of one reaching out to to like a hologram or, or smoke, like something that's there but it's not, and they go and they reach and they try and grab it, only to look back at their hand and realize that it's empty. Something so close yet so far. And there's this fleetingness to life that there really is nothing new. We aren't in control of what happens. We can't control the outcome. Which brings us to that question, and I think it's an important one. What does man gain by all that toil that happens under the sun? What is the benefit of all of this hustle? The phrase under the sun, as I mentioned earlier, is that which is happening on this side of earth. What is happening without, without God? If we were to see this world without, without a perspective of, of God at our side, what would this world be like? And so he's speaking into that worldview. As the next verse says, a generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth remains forever. And the teacher begins to expand on his answer, and his musings actually take us into the created world in the next few verses. That the generations come and they go, and yet the earth remains forever. And here's where the teacher begins to really harp on this idea of the cyclical nature of human existence. The idea that all things happen over and over again, and nothing fully changes. And now when I was reading this, I was struggling with this, because I'm sure you guys have in your head that, like, I'm sure some human progress has happened, right? Like, we can't possibly have been doing the same thing over and over and over again for, for 3,000 years, and we've made no progress at all. But under the surface, humans are still humans. We have a natural bend from the Garden of Eden to now to sin and to live in separation from God. And while, what looks, while we look around and we see that a building like this wouldn't have been made 2,000 years ago, the very heart inside each of us has the same sin tendencies as someone did two, three, four, five thousand years ago. Underneath the veneer is the human heart is, is a sinful nature, still warped in need of a savior. And in verses five to seven, the teacher moves on to give examples of this sort of cyclical nature, uh, cyclical nature through nature, through the created world. And what he does is he gives three examples of this. 
The first example is in verse 5, where he gives the example of the sun. And the teacher says that the sun rises and the sun goes down, and it, it hastens, hastens to the place where it rises. As I was reading over this morning, I'm like, hastens, has, hastens. I think it's hastens. If there's any English teachers, you can just call it out. That's the feedback I'm looking for. Hastens to the place where it rises. The image we get here of the sun is almost the sun working its hardest to make its way across the sky. It's almost panting to be out of breath at this point. It makes it to the top of the sky only to go back down at the end of the day and redo it all over again tomorrow. Same old, same old. A preordained task the sun has been given from the beginning of creation from God to keep the world running, to keep the world ticking along. Nothing really changing, nothing exactly new. And in verse 6, we get this second illustration where he gives of wind. It blows to the south and around to the north. Around and around it goes, and then it returns. The wind is probably a prime example of the ceaseless work of nature. Very little fruit at the end of it. Of course, today with modern technology, we've like managed to harness wind, but think about 3,000 years ago. Their worldview was very small, and they would have seen that and been like, yeah, like the wind, this, is, this fits. I understand that. Where nothing really comes of, of wind itself. And then he concludes with a reference to water, to rain, to the sea. All streams running to the sea, yet it never does fill. They stream and flow, and then they flow some more. And the images have moved from very far away from the sun all the way down to wind, all the way down to the earth itself, where they would have, they would have experienced this, they would have understood what is being said. And what we understand and we see, and like we, we learn in elementary school about how water evaporates and, and clouds form and rainfall and all of these things, we never just watch these things actually happen. There's a ceaselessness to it. For the audience who's reading this, these agrarian, these, these agricultural uh, examples would have really struck a chord for them. And they're great examples, perfect examples, all of this striving in life, all of this striving towards something, and yet nothing truly new under the sun. Maybe for a new BC resident, they'll move here in the middle of the fall, and they'll experience like 10 days of rain. They're like, oh, well, tomorrow will be different. 100 days, 100 days later, and it's still the same thing. Nothing truly new under the clouds. But maybe a more modern example of this would be the grind of working five days a week to make it to your weekend. As Loverboy said, everybody working for the weekend. This pursuit of the weekend, of pursuing a break from it. Of just can't, you can't wait on Friday to kick your feet up and just enjoy only for Monday morning to come around and it all begins again. Again, I'm just encouraging you guys this morning. I'm just, hey, this is what, this is what God says, right? But that's, this is kind of the, the nature of, of humanity. You long for that vacation, and once it happens, you're like, yes, this is going to be awesome. And then you get to the airport at the end of it, and you go home, and you're like, oh, work again. Okay, we're back. But this is what, this is the world we, we live in. And this is a pursuit without, without God at the forefront. And so verses 8 to 11, and I want to spend a bit more time here this morning. They say this, All things are wearisome, more than one can say. 
The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, that is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. There's no remembrance of former things. At a large glance, we can talk about what human history looks like, of looking back to go forward, what has happened and what will happen again and again. And another reminder is that this, this, we're looking at this perspective through the lens of under the sun. You see, the eye is not satisfied, nor the ear is filled with hearing. What has been done has been done. Something new? Nope. It's been done in the age before us. History, doomed to repeat itself over and over again, fleeting, and then seeking after that which is fleeting. And there's two things in this section that, as I was preparing for this, kind of caught my eye. And the first one is in verse 8, that the eye and the ear are never truly satisfied. The longing for something new, yet our physical senses letting us down. See, I grew up a pretty big Star Wars fan. I, I grew up as a, a 90s kid, early 2000s kid, and I watched the original three as a kid with my dad, uh, and I, I loved them. And I remember when episode one, two, and three came out, like the, not the original three, but like the, I can't remember what they're called. Clearly, I'm not a Star Wars fan anymore. I grew up being a big Star Wars fan. We're going to get to why I'm not. But the, the, first, the, the next three came out, and I was like, oh, like, these are awesome. I remember getting a lightsaber as a, kid, as a, like a birthday present when I was like eight, and like my sisters didn't love that gift, but I loved that gift. I thought it was so cool. And I just like, loved it. I love this idea of like, Jedis in, the, in, the, in this galaxy being like, bringing the peace. And they just, it was like the whole thing. It was great. Peak childhood. So in Disney bought Star Wars, announced they were coming out with like, they're going to turn this billion dollar industry into like a 30 billion dollar industry. I was like, more Star Wars? That sounds amazing. Like, I love that. Like, I genuinely like really was looking forward to it. And the first movie comes out and you're like, oh, this is really cool. And by like the third movie, you're like, you're numb to this. The, 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 all the TV shows coming out, you watch one episode of the newest show and you're like, oh, like, I'm kind of over it. And then you find out through someone else that you're like, oh, they've been coming out with shows like every other week. And you find out that it's actually kind of lets you down, that you long for this thing that's going to get, like, not that you're necessarily putting your fulfillment in it, but also you realize you put a lot more stock in something that doesn't actually mean much, that your eye and your ear actually end up letting you down. The physical sense is the thing that you long for. You're like, oh, I'm actually not that into it anymore. And that's where I kind of felt. All of a sudden, I was like, I'm like so, so excited for this, only to be like, eh, I'm kind of over it now. It's what happens when you put your hope or your excitement in something and it ends up just letting you down. Which brings us to verse 11. And it's that final verse, the no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things still to come. This idea of forgetfulness, that we are doomed to forget that which has come before us. And what is to come has a very similar Fate. There's a popular phrase that was coined uh, during the 20th century, and the most violent one in, in world history, which is probably why it was coined in the 20th century, that those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. This idea that where we have come from 
is vital in moving forward. Which would fly right in, the fra- right in the face of the writer of Ecclesiastes. He'd be like, humans actually tried that. Like, nah, you're actually wrong. But there's this cyclical nature to how humans operate and repeat history. We take a phrase like that and we think how important that is to remember what has happened before us so we don't repeat it, only to wake up now and be like, well, our world actually hasn't fully learned from the past. An example of this is the history of Israel. You see, God chooses Israel as a nation that he is going to be to bless the whole world through. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, we hear the words, For you are a people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So God chooses them. God chooses the people of Israel to be a blessing. And then in return, he asks Israel to image, to to mirror himself, to image God to others around them so that the world can be blessed by God and by his people. Yet, they aren't very good at this. They're very sinful and they're influenced by the world around them. They aren't very good at being image bearers of God. And so they try to follow God over and over, but it doesn't work. Sin was like crouching at their door, and they just couldn't quite get over um, this pattern. In fact, it goes so poorly that they decide that the best way forward is for them to ask God for a king, to be like the nations around them. So if their original idea was to be a blessing and to be different than the world around them, they come to this place where they are so in the world around them that they want to just fit in. And of course, they want a king. They want a leader. Before they had a leader who was in communication, in relationship with God so closely, and instead they just want to simply fit in, to be, to, to be molded into the world around them. And God gives them that. He gives them kings to lead them, and it still doesn't work. And so generation after generation, sin, sinful pattern after sinful pattern, Israel just continues to fall and to, and to falter and to just to fail at what God has called them to do. And out of that, God shows them grace, grace upon grace upon grace, until finally out of his compassion, he shows frustration and he shows them anger. And he's like, no, like this, I can't keep watching you do this to yourself. And that ends them in exile. And, and Israel's story is, is so messy. But I remember sitting in, in, a, in like my first year Old Testament class and like watching this cycle happen over and over. And also just having this aha moment when I was like 19. Wait, like I hope, I hope that our high school students, I hope that like our kids like learn this way later than I do. But I was like 19, 20 years old and I was like, Israel's story is our story. That's crazy. I was like, we literally do the same thing, that we are given chance after chance, moment after moment to redeem ourselves, and yet our life looks a lot like Israel's life, that we're doomed to continue to repeat these sinful patterns that are like consuming us over and over and over again, that we are broken that regardless of what happens under the sun, on this side of heaven, we can have all of the technological advances for years. We can read all of the, perf- all the books on how to have a perfect life, to be super healthy, to, to just live like the zen, perfect, utopian world. And yet at the end of the day, we're all humans. That the heart inside each of us is broken and in need of a savior. We're in need of grace. And luckily, Israel's story is marked with with a future, with a future through a Messiah. In Isaiah 43, he says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? 
I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the, de- in the desert. After years of wandering, of, of frustration for, uh, for the Israelite people, God says, I'm going to actually break this cycle. This cycle, this repetition of sin and struggle and strife is actually going to come to an end. And I'm going to send someone to actually redeem you in Jesus. You see, something, does, something new does come. Something, something new has come that's going to, that has brought an end to the cycle of brokenness and to sin and to what was. As Paul says to the church in, in, to, in Corinth, he says, this is in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. You see, that is the gospel. That's the good news. That Jesus has come to renew each of us, to redeem us from the brokenness that is inside each of us. That Jesus, coming in the flesh, fully God and fully man, taking on all of the sin and all of the evil of the world onto himself, dying on the cross, defeating the grave in his resurrection so that the condemnation of sin is broken for each of us. You see that cycle of Israel, of a lot of our lives under the sun, go on and on and on. And here comes Jesus that says, I want to end that. I want to show you grace. There's a way out. Paul again says in Colossians 2, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of us our trespasses. And yet we look and we recognize that evil still exists. Even as we talk about this, there's still a tension. The cycle is broken, but yet all of us have already sinned this morning. We came, we've, we've sinned before we even got into the building. And so while the, the cycle is broken, we live in this tension where it hasn't fully happened yet. That the sins of, the, of our past still haunt our future. And it's true. I can assure you, everyone in this room, as I said, has, has fallen short already today, and we continue to because of, we are human. And that's where we have to daily, desi- daily die to the desires of our flesh and to rest in Jesus, to reorient our identity as, the one, who belong- as one who belongs to him, to God, to rest in him and say, you are, you are the provider of, of peace, the one who is the provider of life. Because I said we live in this tension of the now and the not yet, the tension where Jesus has won the battle over sin and he has announced to each of us that we are chosen and we are loved by him. But we also wait in anticipation of this coming to fulfillment. And so now we rest in him, we lean on him, we depend on his word, we depend on his teachings and his body to carry us through that which we cannot on our own. And it's a beautiful message that we can see beyond the sun. That as the writer of the Ecclesiastes is looking under the sun, we can look and see above it and see that what is meaningless, we can see what is meaningless and we can set our gaze on what is actually meaningful. And to say like, Jesus, you are, you are meaningful. You're more than meaningful. You are our savior. And so the cycle continues and yet we, are, we can choose Jesus and be and be healed, and be forgiven, and we can continue to lean on his grace. And so this morning, it was funny, as I was, as I was preparing for this, I had a little bit more uh, time to think about this. I was kind of processing where to go, 
And as I was like thinking about where does this, like how does this fit? Like where do we take some, a text like this and say like this, like it's like really easy. Like take these three things and like you're gonna like walk into this week like a new person. I'm like, I don't know if that's totally true. But I was thinking about like how do we, how do we look above the sun and how do we say like, how do we keep our eyes on Jesus? And there's so many of the past sermons that have been being preached in this, in this series, but also that Brad preached a few weeks ago on contentment. All of these things were the things that I was like kind of writing down and thinking about. And I was like, this seems to be a theme. That one of the ways that we can, we can end even the, the cycle of hustle in our world is to find contentment. I don't need to talk about contentment anymore. Brad did a great job. Go listen to his sermon. That's a sermon talking about another sermon. But that's one of the ways that we, we end that. We say, like, God, we want to find our rest in you. We want to be content. Contentment on what is already around us and an awareness of what is on this earth is actually fleeting. But there's purpose we can find in something that is eternal, and that is Jesus. And so may we see what is new and to see what Jesus is doing in and through each of us and to pursue that which is not fleeting, but actually freeing and life-giving. And so, to close, I just want to leave you guys with a few questions uh, to ponder. The first one is this. Where in your own life would you like the cycle of what was gone has happened before you to be broken? Where in your own life would you like the cycle of what was gone, what was done before, to be broken? Most likely, that's a sin pattern. I know when I was thinking about this and praying about this, there are sin patterns, there are habits, there are things that I do that I, like, I, I want Jesus to come and heal that part of my heart. And so I pray that that would be something you think about this week. Maybe it's a fixation on something just ahead of you that you're just wanting to reach, only to realize that it might actually be fleeting. Putting stock in what is temporary. And the second is, what does it mean to you that you are a new creation. It's powerful that Jesus has chosen us and we are made new by his blood. And we hear that language quite often in church. It's a language that we, we throw around and sometimes it feels something that's maybe in our head. And I know for me, as I was thinking about this, I often live with that knowledge in my head and it hasn't quite made the transfer to my heart where I know that to be true, but I don't live in that newness that the things that I do are still things that uh, have plagued me even before I, I chose Jesus, before Jesus has chosen me. And so when you hear that, that you are a new creation, what, is that, what does that mean to you? How does that sit with your soul? I, I find that that's, that's incredible news, that Jesus has chosen each of us to be a new creation in him. Do you feel that? Do you feel the weight of Jesus choosing you? So I want to pray, invite the worship team back up as we continue to keep worshiping. God, we thank you that your word is a lamp into our feet and that we can, even in a text um, like this where you point to what is, what is fleeting around us, that there's nothing new. God, you, you sent us something new, that you, you sent Jesus you sent your son in the flesh to die for us, to make, to make us new, to make our hearts new. So God, I pray that even as we worship this morning, as we finish this time together, that you would be stirring in our hearts, that you'd be convicting, you'd be moving in, in each of us. God, maybe there are, yeah, 
patterns, sin patterns, things that are just keep coming up over and over. God, I just pray that your grace would come and, and fill, fill this room, that you would fill each person here who just longs for that. God, I just thank you that, yeah, I just thank you that you have, you have chosen us, that we are a new creation in you, and that we can rest in that truth, that you, that you are good. God, we thank you for this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for joining us at the Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word, or if you're wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know more about our church, access our website. There, you can connect with us and also have access to other contents. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe he is the hope of the world and wants to give you hope as well. We believe the best news ever has come in and through him. May you know him more and make him known today. We'd love to hear from you.